We want to explore all sports and competitions on a deeper level in order to understand the less mainstream topics and events. We here at Deep Dive Sports not only want you to walk away having learned something, but for us to have learned something new as well. Now don't get us wrong, we will do our best to cover the big events, but our main goal is to give you a different perspective on some of the overlooked sports and competitions across the globe. We hope you're ready to learn, laugh, and have fun because we are excited to bring you this podcast. Please sit back, relax, and dive deep into these topics with us. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep Dive Sports. We have an amazing show in store for you today, as we will be talking about Australian rules football. But first, let's give a brief discussion of the history of the sport. So evidence of football being played sporadically across Australia dates back to as early as the 1800s. Originally, Australian rules football, when compared to sports such as cricket and horse racing, was considered as a mere amusement and wasn't taken very seriously. However, in 1858, in a move that would shape Australian rules football in its formative years, private schools began organizing football matches. The earliest such match held in St. Kilda between Melbourne Grammar and St. Kilda Grammar. Another significant milestone, also in 1858, was a match played under experimental rules between Melbourne Grammar and Scotch College. This was a 40-a-side contest, which continued over two subsequent Saturdays and ended in a draw with each side kicking one goal. It is commemorated with a statue outside Melbourne Grammar, and the two schools have competed annually ever since in the Cordner-Eggleston Cup which is the world's oldest continuous football competition. As clubs began touring the colonies in the late 1870s, the sport spread to New South Wales. And in 1879, the first intercolonial match took place in Melbourne between Victoria and New South Wales. The sport reached Queensland in as early as 1866 and experienced a period of dominance there. But like in New Zealand and areas of New South Wales, it struggled to thrive, largely due to the spread of rugby and British migration, regional rivalries, and the lack of strong governing bodies. In the case of Sydney, denial of access to grounds, the influence of university headmasters from Britain who favored rugby, and the loss of players to other sports inhibited the game's growth. In 1896, delegates from the six wealthiest clubs, such as Carlton, Eston, Fitzroy, Greelong, and Melbourne and South Melbourne met to discuss the formation of a breakaway professional competition. Later joined by Collingwood and St. Kilda, the clubs formed the Victorian Football League, which held its inaugural season in 1897. The VFL's popularity grew rapidly as it made several innovations, such as instituting a final system. However, both World War I and World War II had a devastating effect on Australian football and on Australian sports in general. The game lost many of its great players to wartime service. Some clubs and competitions have never really fully recovered. And between 1914 and 1915, a proposed hybrid code of Australian football and rugby was proposed. The predominant code in football in New South Wales and Queensland was tried, but without success. With lack of international competition, state representative matches were regarded with great importance. The Australian Football Council coordinated regular interstate carnivals, including the Australian Football Jubilee, held in Melbourne in 1908 to celebrate the game's semi-century. However, state origin rules 
introduced in 1977 stipulated that rather than representing the state of their adopted club, players would return to play for this state in which they were recruited. This was put in place because Victoria had dominated interstate football matches for decades. The implementation of these new rules broke Victoria's stronghold over the state titles, and Western Australia and South Australia began to win more matches against Victoria. Both New South Wales and Tanzania would score surprise victories at home against Victoria in 1990. The VFL changed its name to the Australian Football League, or AFL, for the 1990 season, and over the next decade added three teams, Adelaide in 1991, Fremantle in 1995, and Port Adelaide in 1997. The league then expanded again in 2011 and 2012 with the addition of the Gold Coast and the Greater Western Sydney. The AFL currently, with 18 member clubs, is the sport's elite competition and most powerful body. Following the emergence of the AFL, state leagues were quickly regulated to second-tier status. State and territorial leagues still hold interstate matches, as do AFL women's players. Although a Tanzanian bid is currently outgoing, the AFL's focus has been on expanding into markets outside of Australia. The AFL regularly schedules preseason exhibition matches in all Australian states and territories as part of the regional challenge. Also, the AFL signaled further attempts at expansion in the 2010s by hosting home and away matches in both New Zealand and China. And now we will go to Nick, who will explain the rules, and then David will give a brief rundown of the structure of the leagues. To start, the field, like the ball, is oval-shaped, and in Australia, cricket grounds are often used. No more than 18 players for the men and 16 players for the women are permitted to be on the field at any time. Each team can have up to four substitutions at any time during the game. In Australian rules terminology, these players wait for substitution on the bench, an area With a row of seats on the sidelines, players must interchange through a designated interchange gate with strict penalties for too many players from one team on the field. So this is kind of like our hockey where when they come off the ice, one player has to come off before another goes on. In addition, some leagues have each team designate one player as a substitute who can be used to make a single permanent exchange of players during a game. There is also no offsides rule, and there are no set positions. Unlike many other forms of football, players from both teams may disperse across the whole field before the start of play. However, a typical field structure consists of six forwards, six defenders or backmen, and six midfielders, usually two wingmen, one center, three followers, including a rookman, rook over, and a rover. So a rover is just kind of like somebody who is a gadget player. They can do anything, play defense, offense. They kind of just go wherever they are needed. Also, only four players from each team are allowed within the center square at every center bounce, which occurs at the commencement of each quarter and the restart of the game after a goal is scored. A game consists of four quarters. Each quarter consists of 20 minutes of play, with the clock being stopped for instances such as scores, the ball going out of bounds, or at the umpire's discretion. Stoppages cause quarters to be extended approximately about 5 to 10 minutes beyond that 20-minute mark, depending on the umpire's discretion. And six minutes of rest is allowed before the second and the fourth quarter, and then 
in between the second and third quarter, there is a 20-minute rest for the halftime. The official game clock is available only to the timekeepers and is not displayed to the players, umpires, or spectators. The only public knowledge of the game time is when the timekeeper sounds a siren at the start and end of each quarter, which I thought was super interesting because it just allows the players to get in a headspace of going out there playing hard until they hear that last siren. But the coaches and staff, they monitor the game time themselves, so they're able to kind of convey that to the players on the field. And then the broadcasters usually try to display an approximation of the official game time for television audiences. Obviously, they might be a little bit off if the umpires add more time or not, but they are trying to help people kind of keep track of how long the match lasts and and where they are at that point. Next on to the general play. Before the game, the winner of the coin toss determines which direction the teams will play to begin. Australian football begins after the first siren when the umpire bounces the ball on the ground or throws it into the air if they deem the conditions of the ground are too poor. And the two rookmen, typically your tallest players from each team, battle for the ball in the air on its way back down. This is known as a ball up. Certain disputes during play may also be settled with a ball up from the point of contention. For example, if the ball goes out of bounds, then a ball up will be had. A free kick is paid if the ball is deemed by the umpire to have been deliberately carried or directed out of bounds. If the ball travels out of bounds in any other circumstance, a boundary judge will stand with their back to the infield and return the ball into play with a throw-in, which is a high backwards toss over their back into the field of play, which is kind of funny if you think about it because the umpire is standing basically towards the stands or towards the fans with their back towards the players, and they're just heaving this ball as hard as they can anywhere they seem fit. And all these players have to rush towards it and try to be the first one to get it. So that is definitely an interesting facet of the game. Also, the ball can be propelled in any direction by way of foot, clenched fist, which is called a handball or a hand pass, or an open hand tap. But it cannot be thrown under any circumstance. Once a player takes possession of the ball, they can dispose of it by either kicking or handballing it. Any other method of disposal is illegal and will result in a free kick to the opposing team. This is usually called an incorrect disposal. If the ball is not in the possession of one player, it can be moved on with any part of the body. A player may run with the ball, but it must be bounced or touched on the ground at least once every 16 yards. Opposition players may bump or tackle the player to obtain the ball, and when tackled, the player must dispose of the ball cleanly or risk being penalized for holding the ball. The ball carrier may only be tackled between the shoulders and the knees. If the opposition player forcefully contacts the player in the back while performing a tackle, the opposition player will be penalized for a push in the back. If the opposition tackles the player with position below the knees or above the shoulders, the team with possession of the football gets a free kick. If a player takes possession of the ball that has traveled more than 16 yards from another player's kick by the way of catching it, it is claimed as a mark, meaning that the game stops while they prepare to kick from that point at which they marked. Alternatively, 
they may choose to play on. So once a player has chosen to play on, normal play resumes, and the player who took the mark is again able to be tackled. There are different styles of kicking depending on how the ball is held in the hand. The most common style of kicking seen in today's game, principally because of its superior accuracy, is the drop punt, where the ball is dropped from the hands down almost to the ground to be kicked so that the ball rotates in a reverse end-over-end motion as it travels through the air. We've kind of seen that more in our American football as we have players from Australia come over to be our punters. You kind of see that style of kick sometimes. Another commonly used kick is the torpedo punt, also known as the spiral, barrel, or screw punt, where the ball is held flatter at an angle across the body, which makes the ball spin around its long axis in the air, resulting in extra distance. This is actually similar to our traditional punts that we have in our American football. The next one is the check side punt or the banana. They kick the ball with the outside of their foot and use that to curve the ball towards targets that are on an angle. And then the last one is called a snap, which is basically the opposite of a check side. It is also possible to kick the ball so that it bounces along the ground. This is known as a grubber. Grubbers can bounce in a straight line or curve left to right. Lastly, scoring. A goal which is worth six points is scored when the football is propelled through the goalpost at any height, including over the height of the post, by way of kick from the attacking team. It may fly through or bounce through, but must not have been touched on the way by any player from either team or a goalpost. A goal cannot be scored from the foot of an opposition player. A behind, which is worth one point, is awarded to the attacking team if the ball touches any part of an opposition player, including a foot, before passing through the goalpost. When an opposition player deliberately scores a behind for the attacking team, generally as a last resort to ensure that a goal is not scored, this is termed a rushed behind. As of the 2009 AFL season, a free kick is awarded against any player who deliberately rushes a behind. And then, obviously, the team that has scored the most points at the end of play wins the game. If by chance the scores are level at end of play, the game is a draw. Extra time applies only during finals matches, but only in some competitions. While doing my research, I found out that there are several different leagues that operate under the Australian Football League. There are the Metro Leagues, the Country Leagues, the Statewide Leagues, and the Umpire Leagues. For each league, there are several different leagues within those main leagues. For the Metro League, there's a total of eight total leagues. For example, there is the Eastern Football League, the Esden District Football League, and the Northern Football Netball League, just as an example. For the country, in total, there, is a t- there are 12 different leagues. For example, there's the AFL Barwon, the AFL Central Murray, the AFL Central Victoria, as well as the AFL Gypsyland. For the statewide, however, unlike the other three, there are only four leagues, and they are the Peter Jackson VFL, 
the Swiss Wellness Women's, the TAC Cup or the TAC Cup, and the TAC Cup Girls. For the umpire league, there are 13 total leagues, and it's pretty much the same as the country leagues, with the exception of one, and that is the Metro umpire groups. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of great info. Now, to keep things moving, Nick, go ahead and give us a rundown of some of the major tournaments. Australian rules football is a sport played in over 60 countries around the world. I'm just going to name off a few of those major tournaments that fall within this category. First is the Arafura Games, which is played in the Asia-Pacific region, which was founded in 1999. It is on a biannual basis. Next, we have the Asian-Australian Football Championship, which is also played in the Asia-Pacific region, but that was formed in 2000 and is on an annual basis. Next is the Atlantic Alliance Cup, which is in the North Atlantic region, and that was formed in 2001. Then there is the Australian Football International Cup, and that is a worldwide event, which was formed in 2002 and is on a tri-annual basis. Then we have the Bali Nines, which is in the Oceanic region, which was formed in 2002 as well, and that is actually on an annual basis. Then you have the Barassi International Australian Football Youth Tournament, which is also on a worldwide scale like the Australian Football International Cup, except that was formed in 1998. And like the Australian Football International Cup, it is on a tri-annual basis. The next tournament is also on a tri-annual basis. It was formed in 2010, and it is in Europe, and that is the European Championships. Next, we have the Four Nations Cup, which is in Southeast Asia. That was formed in 1999, and that is on an annual basis. The next one is the Narita Cup, which is in Asia, and that was formed in 1996 while also being on an annual basis. Then we have the Northern Cup, which is in England and Scotland. That was formed in 2003 while also being on an annual basis. Then you have the Oktoberfest Cup formed in 1997. This happens on an annual basis, and it is between Denmark, France, and the United Kingdom. Then last on our list, we have the Trans-Atlantic Cup. This is actually a brand new thing that is supposed to start in 2021, and it is between the United States and Great Britain. It is currently scheduled for London in the in August of 2021, and then will be in the United States in 2024. So it seems like it's going to be a triannual event. So this next section, we're going to keep it more opinion-based with the question, do you guys think that Australian rules football will ever be popular in the U.S.? And if so, where do you think it would rank among the major sports in the U.S.? I'll start this off. In my opinion, even though Australian rules football has been played in the U.S. since 1996, and it's been growing fairly rapidly, you know, according to recent polls, 7.4 million North Americans watch Australian rules football occasionally on television. So it has been growing, but I don't see it becoming super popular in the States. I could see it getting on level of maybe a sport like lacrosse, but I don't think it's ever going to be regarded as a, a major sport. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see where you're coming from. You know, I, I definitely think you have a really good point there. You know, it is hard for sports to kind of break through our major ones and become as popular as those. 
I do think it has a chance because of its brutality. And I put that in, you know, quotation marks because as Americans, some might be missing the way, you know, our American football used to be like rugby, Australian rules football could be a source of big hits that people want. So I know when talking to, you know, people who love the older way that, you know, our football was played, they loved those big hits. They loved the physicality of it. They just loved that aspect of the game. Now, I'm not saying that people want, you know, other people to get hurt, but these games do derive from a time when the more gruesome, the better. So, like I said, I can see it becoming more popular because of that aspect of it because it's giving us something that we don't necessarily get from, you know, sports that we used to. And if people do kind of start following it on that thinking, then I could see it becoming more popular than sports such as lacrosse, maybe even getting up there with sports such as like hockey or soccer with the United States. But like I said at the beginning, it is hard for, you know, newer sports to catch on and grow and it takes them a long time. I mean, we've seen the WNBA has been around for almost a decade, if not a little bit over, and it's still not where it probably should be when you think about the NBA's popularity. So it'd be interesting to see over the next 10 years how it grows, where it kind of goes. Like I said, I think there's people that love the love the um, physicality of that sport, but also as a country, we're kind of leaning more towards health and safety of players within sports. So that might also affect the way that people view that as well. Yeah, I understand where all you guys are coming from. And even though, yeah, the sport is very popular, even to an extent here in the U.S., but very popular in Australia where it was created, I think that the the sport, much like rugby, because of the fact that there are so many leagues that go into this sport and the fact that there are many leagues brings along the fact that there are many rules. And so it'll probably change because of it being in the United States to in a certain extent, kind of like what Nick mentioned to try and make it at least a little bit more safer for the, for the athletes. I don't think it will. And because of those factors, I don't think it will pick up nearly as quickly as some may think. But then again, I don't know much about outside of tonight. I don't know much about the sport. So who knows? Thanks guys. I think, uh, I think you guys both had some good opinions there. So next, I just wanted to talk about something that I discovered while I was doing some research for this episode and it's the reason, regional popularity of the sport within Australia. You know, unlike sports in the U.S. like football or basketball that are popular across the country, it seems like Australian rules football is more popular in some regions of the country than others. So it is most popular in the Northern Territories, South Australia, Tanzania, and Victoria, as well as Western Australia but has really struggled to gain a lot of popularity in New South Wales, the Australian Capital Territory, and Queensland. Although there has traditionally been support in in regions within those states, the AFL teams from Brisbane and Sydney seem to have a more fair-weather fan base and have attracted a strong 
increase in crowds, you know, when they've been more successful and have been winning championships, but recently their teams have not been as good and not only have crowd sizes been down, but also TV ratings have also declined for both teams. So next we're going to do our final thoughts and David, we'll start with you. Uh, So I'll just keep this relatively brief because I think that we all kind of covered our really our final thoughts in the question above. Although, yes, I really liked learning about this. Will I look more into it? Most likely, because it's it's another take on a, another very popular sport, American football, and as well as rugby. And so with that said, I want to thank Dom for bringing this topic up into our attention and allowing us to bring this to our fans. And that's pretty much all I really have to say about this tonight or today. So just for me, I did really enjoy learning about this. For our fans, if you all kind of haven't picked up on it, these past three episodes have been different versions of kind of what we watch today in America. Our American football really kind of derived from these three variations and has grown to that. So we kind of structured these three episodes to be right around when the Super Bowl was happening and all that talk and everything as well, too, to give you guys a different perspective on football around the world as as a whole. And this is definitely another interesting type of game. There's lots of physicality. There's lots of passion in it as well as rugby. And for the people of Australia, they really do have a love for this sport. You know, obviously, like Dom said, there's some dwindling viewership within some parts of it, and that happens. I mean, you see some of our sports teams around the country. If you're not if you're not uh, being successful, then unfortunately, people are going to stop supporting you. So, but at the end of the day, like we said last week with Gaelic football and the week before with rugby, this sport is, again, very passionate and deep-rooted in its history from where it comes from. So it's something definitely to give a look at. And especially since it's in the United States, it's kind of started to spread some roots. So it's worth looking into. There's places around you that you can go uh, watch a match, learn more about it. Go ahead and give it a try. And I definitely think that that we will in the future. And like David said, thank you, Dom, for uh, heading up this episode and, and bringing us through this and helping us learn more about this this week. Cool. Thanks guys for coming on and joining the episode today. I definitely enjoyed learning about this sport. You know, it's a sport that I've heard of, but you know, like all our episodes in the past, it's a sport that I didn't know anything about, but overall I think it was a good discussion and I think we learned a lot from it. So I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of Deep Dive Sports. Hey everyone. Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear more, feel free to listen to past episodes and look for new ones every Friday. And don't forget to follow us at deep.dive.sport on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for any update. And please let us know what you would like us to take a deep dive into next. As always, we are Deep Dive Sports. Until next time.